Well, and today, as we get into Acts chapter 1, we're going to um, see as part of this a practice that some people would look at and think, that's just superstitious. Why would they be doing that? If you know this section, you already know what I'm talking about. Well, we'll get, at that, get to that um, as, we, as we move along here. But let's start from verse 12. And just as a recap from what we've seen so far, a lot has happened just in the first 11 verses where um, Luke introduces the book. This is the second book. It's part two. Right? It's the sequel to his gospel account, the gospel of Luke. And he, he tells at the beginning here how Jesus, after his resurrection, continued to be with the disciples for 40 days before then his ascension. And then he tells them, um, okay, stay here in Jerusalem, wait for power from on high to come upon you. Um, so where we are meeting them today is in that overlap, that in-between time uh, between Jesus' ascension and before the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the... Uh, just this interesting interlude here where they had to have been wondering, okay, what's next? And it shouldn't surprise us that what they immediately turn to is leadership. We need to make sure that we have our leadership in order. Now that the Lord has ascended, we don't know what awaits us next. And so who's going to be leading us? So um, let's start with uh, that first paragraph, verses uh, 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay. A couple of things I want to uh, draw out to you here in, in these first couple of verses. So number two on your handout on the first page, the early church practiced homothumadon. You've heard me say this word before. Go ahead, let, let's say it together. Homothumadon, right? That's just, it sounds so nice. Um, the, it's a Greek word usually translated with one accord. It literally means rushing together, okay? You picture like a, a river or a stream rushing together, the current. And it shows up here in verse 14, all of these uh, uh, disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is one of the um, distinguishing marks in the book of Acts of, of the early church is that they were doing things with one accord, with this spirit-wrought unity that we call homothumadon. It could not be affected or created just by having, um, you know, uh, similar interests or likes. It wasn't just because they were the same demographically or any of these different things. But they had this spirit-forged unity, single-mindedness that the scriptures use this word, homothumadon. And it actually shows up multiple times in the book of Acts. Uh, but just to give uh, one other example, a notable example in Acts chapter 2 Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, you read that and you say, where is the, where's homothumadon in that verse? Attending the temple together. Together, yeah, together. So the translation there kind of wimps out. If you got homothumadon, you can't just translate that together. You got to give it at least with one accord, something more than that. But it's this idea that there they are working together. It's a, a prayer as, all, as well. Uh, Romans 15, Paul prays, and let's see if you can pick it out here. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where's Homothumadon there? It shows up more than once, doesn't it? In accord with Christ Jesus, Homothumadon, and also that together you may with one voice. That's how they translate it there. Well, and harmony is a similar concept as well. Um, such a beautiful prayer that we would have this homothumadon with the Lord, the single-mindedness with the Lord, that then also spills out into our fellowship with one another. See, and just speaking personally, this is a prayer that I regularly lift before the Lord for our church, that we would have this kind of homothumadon, this single-mindedness of purpose and this unity with Christ, the communion that we have with Christ, uh, because it's powerful when God's people are working together and walking together in this way to make his, his message and his mercy known in the world. Now, I do have to mention, though, there is a shadow side to homothumadon that gets brought out within the book of Acts, because there's one other place that it shows up in Acts, not speaking of the disciples, but this is in Acts chapter 7. You've got this on your handout too. It says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Okay, you don't have any context clues there, but anybody know who's that? what story is that talking about? Yeah, Ann. That's the, that's the Pharisees stoning Stephen. Uh, exactly. This is the stoning of Stephen. And when they hear this opposition, uh, to Jesus and to his early followers, it also has a kind of homothumadon. So it can be co-opted and abused for negative ends. And I think that's something to, to bear in mind, that homothumadon doesn't only show up among Christians, but there can be a kind of, I put it this way, an anti-homothumadon by those who would be united in spite or hatred or anger or what have you. And that's what you have there. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And here it gives the more literal translation. And they rushed together at him. Their homothumadon was quite literally in that rushing together. It's kind of a scary sight, actually, to think about it. Of course, Stephen uh, is granted that special um, power and grace from the Lord in that moment that he is not afraid. And he looks up and he prays essentially as Jesus himself did. You know, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, this is a, a, a mark of the church. Matt, you're... Uh, yeah, you can keep going if you're on track. No, go my, ahead. My question can come later. Is, is it about the homothumadon or the, the X7? No, it's about verse 14. Of, oh, okay. Well, no, go ahead. Uh, I've never really read it before, but at the, at the end it says, um, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. Yes, right. And it started calling in, you know... Okay, is that a controversial point? Because I feel like Catholics uh, right. try to claim perpetual virginity yes. of Mary and things like that. Yep. So, <clears throat> as I'm just checking that, it, it is kind of a form of contention. Yes, right. No, it's, it is. Um, so what Matt's alluding to is um, within Roman Catholic thought, and even among some Lutherans, actually, um, there is uh, a belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay? Now, this is, this is getting pretty, pretty deep into uh, theological type stuff here. But there, there's some who hold that Mary stayed in her chaste state all of her life, including after the, the birth of Jesus. 
Um, now, it would seem to be, and this isn't the only example, I can't uh, think of the other ones off the top of my head, but there's more than one place where it speaks of subsequent half-brothers, half-siblings, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. And uh, those who um, hold to that perpetual virginity of Mary get around it in a couple of different ways. One is to say, well, it's speaking here in that metaphorical sense of the brothers of the, you know, in the church. Um, or other times I've even heard it said, well, brothers could also be used for other relatives, like a cousin um, could be referred to as a brother. And there's some validity to that. But again, the burden of proof is on those who would say, no, she was perpetually a virgin, and there seems to be pretty clear textual evidence to the contrary. And to be honest, I'm not sure what is to be, what is to be gained with that doctrine other than a kind of you know, exalting of Mary beyond the fact that she's already what we call the theotokos, the God-bearer, the, you know, the mother of the Lord. I'm not sure why that needs to be, any more needs to be done to, um, yeah, but Ann, yeah, go ahead. This isn't about Mary. Yeah, good question. I was wondering that too. And from uh, what I can tell, commentators tend to say that it's probably not just for the simple reason that you've got such a big group. So we'll, we'll get down in verse 15. It tells us there's 120 of them. So um, it, I'm, although on, by the same token, we're not told in the Gospels that it was a small room that they were meeting in. So that's more just an assumption that's made. But it's an interesting thought. I wondered about that too. Yeah, Becky. Yeah. That tells us how far away they were from Jerusalem. Yes, good. You guys are asking the same questions I was wondering as I was reading that. And so it actually is, there's, did anybody know or grow up in a, or? or? There's, there's two notes in the study Bible okay. that answer those questions. It Go says, ahead. Uh, permitted distance of 2,000 cubits, just right. over half a mile half from mile. home on Holy Day. Yep. And then the upper room, Luke uses a different word here than during his gospel. Okay, well, that, so that might be another indication that it's a, a different room. Um, but in case you didn't hear what Tom said, uh, a Sabbath day journey was about a half mile. And it's interesting to think about how that shaped um, what we might call town planning once upon a time. And uh, if any of you ever lived around Orthodox Jewish communities, we had one in Spokane, and there's also one, I think it's Hazel Park, um, down in the, in the Detroit area, um, where they cluster together because... They're still trying to follow that. It has to be within walking distance. Uh, interesting thing. But it's also, it is fascinating that Mary shows up here. So we talked about you know, the perpetual virginity question. But um, she is known as, um, within the broader Christian tradition, as the, the second Eve, um, as this kind of analog with um, Eve. Um, so she served a vital role among the early Christians. So in 1 Corinthians 15, you have this, um, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, so the typology is not perfect because, of course, Adam was married to Eve. Jesus is not married to Mary. Um, but the idea is that now, um, as Eve became the conduit of sin and the, um, and the fall, into sin. So now um, through Mary and uh, through her son Jesus, she becomes the conduit of our redeemer and the reversal of sin. 
Um, but another point on this that uh, uh, one commentator makes, which I found kind of interesting, you know, Luke, well, we, we know this about Mary. Luke records this more than once, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We hear this uh, multiple times about Mary, that essentially she's keeping, you know, she's keeping her diary. She's keeping good notes about everything, as you can only imagine she was. Like, dear diary, you won't believe who I got visited by today, you know. Um, but uh, it's pointed out that, as Luke says in the beginning of his gospel, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So some people have suggested perhaps Mary is one of those eyewitnesses that Luke is alluding to. That nobody else was there from the beginning the way that Mary was. And maybe Luke had that opportunity to sit down with her and to go through these, uh, you know, the whole story. Um, there's Plenty of things, especially in Luke's gospel, um, that he has that the other gospel writers don't have that would be known most specifically and clearly by Mary herself. Um, it's an interesting thought. It's, again, something that uh, is more just kind of pious conjecture, but it's certainly a possibility, I think. All right, so questions about Mary or the homothumadon among those first disciples there. Okay, so you can picture it. They're gathered together. They're praying. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there uh, along with others. Uh, let's pick it up then in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. <clears throat> and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So, everybody had their food already uh, before we read this, right? <clears throat> all right. Lot going on here. We'll talk more about Judas in a minute. But first, just the fact to, to sit on that number for a moment. The company of persons was in all about 120. Now that's bigger than 12, but it still does not strike you as an exceptionally large group, does it? I mean, this is 120 out of the hundreds of thousands and even millions of people within the, the Roman Empire. Yeah, Court. But if, well, we don't have enough. Right. But if we did, we couldn't hold 120 people. So <laughs> this upper room had to be mighty big. Sure. Yeah, no, that's it's a fair point. That's why I say I'm not sure what house. But, uh, yeah, go ahead, man. I guess as I'm reading, I'm thinking that at the point where Peter stood up among the brothers, they're no longer in the upper room. Oh, okay. Then now the, the location has changed. Like the brothers were gathered yeah. somewhere else. The first crew that they mentioned was in the upper room. Now we've... Oh, okay. That, that's the way I... Yeah, sure. That's definitely a, a possibility. Good point. Yeah, Leslie. And also, you know, you're talking about the whole Roman Empire, but this is in Jerusalem. What was the population of Jerusalem at that time? Yeah, I mean, it's under, it's under 100,000. So 120... 
might be a lot of people. Well, it's depending on yeah, it's it's a better proportion, but it's still it's not a big group. And I guess what stands out to me about that is that God has this continual way of working. When you think back to one of my favorite Old Testament stories of uh, when Gideon is about to lead the charge against the Midianites, you remember this? And they have 30,000 people, and God says, all right, you've got too many, right? And they keep winnowing it down until finally there's that thing. (laughs) He says, okay, go out and see, uh, go down by the creek to get a drink of water, and whoever laps like a dog, Gideon, that's your guy. You, you want the canine people, and it ends up being 300. I know, it is weird. Um, but God does it to make it clear that the power does not belong in their numbers. The power belongs in his, in his spirit, in his working through his people. And Jesus says this, I mean, this is an exemplary um, passage from Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This idea of the church, the kingdom of God, is this mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, and that the Lord continues to operate this way. For me, this is super encouraging. I think it could be encouraging for a church like Trinity Lutheran. We think, well, we're a smaller church. You know, what can, what can we really do? Um, and just coincidentally, this past week, I had, um, had council meeting, and so I was kind of doing the, the tabulations for this past year. What was our average attendance for the past year? You know, that kind of thing. And um, the average attendance was like 150-something. Uh, um, but the median attendance, in other words, half the Sundays were more than this, half were less, was 122. And I was like, yep, this is you know, just right, just right. This is not to say we don't want to continue to grow, right? But it's the fact that this is, the, the Lord has always operated with smaller groups, right? It's, I mean, we'll see throughout the book of Acts, it grows and it speaks of thousands upon thousands. But all that to say, we don't need to ever feel um, insignificant or inferior on account of numbers. God works through whatever he's got whatever he's got. Um, now, I, I did come across a couple of years ago this research um, from a sociologist by the name of, of Rodney Stark, and he <coughs> was trying to estimate and account for the growth of the church, and um, he uses a variety of different sources. If you're interested in this, I can, I can get you the, the source of um, his book, um, but this is really fascinating. By uh, his estimates, the church grew at roughly 40% a century, or about 3.4% a year. But by the year 250, it's still less than 2% of the population of the empire. Okay. But then by, th- by the year 350, 100 years later, it's more than half the population. So if you take a look at this table, again, this is ballpark numbers, but he's not just pulling this out of a hat. In the year 40, there's about 1,000 Christians. Ten years later, about 1,400. Even by the end of the first century, you're still looking at 7,500 believers in the whole empire. And by the end of the second century, you're up to 217,000, but still not a huge number. It's only by the middle of that century you crack a million. But then look at that jump between 250 and 350. Suddenly, we're over 30 million people. When was the persecution? 
The, the fiercest persecution, that's a good question. The fiercest per persecution was uh, uh, by the emperor Diocletian, which is around the year 300. So there was, there was persecution from the beginning um, to varying degrees. One of the most famous one, of course, would be Nero, the emperor Nero, who um, uh, it's under his reign or his reign of terror that Peter and Paul, um, perhaps Mary, I can't say, um, lose their lives, right, um, on account of their faith. Um, so there was periodic persecution, but the most sustained um, empire-wide persecution was under the emperor um, Diocletian around the year 300. That's also when we see the biggest jump. So that's, you know, uh, correlation is not causation, but it's a, 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 a probably... New church growth uh, strategy there. Right. Look <laughs> at some lions, folks. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, you, perhaps you've heard the expression before that's uh, attributed to the church father Tertullian, that the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Mm -hmm. Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that where the church has been persecuted... Um, where people have been losing their lives for the sake of their confession of faith, there the church has had the biggest growth. You see it still today. I mean, China is kind of a case study in terms of a modern example. Um, but Ethiopia and Kenya, too. Sure, absolutely. Now, that's not to say... I'm, well, I don't know. On this, I'm really divided. I, I don't know that I have the faith to start praying for that kind of persecution, right? <laughs> but uh, God does... He, he operates through it, for sure. Yeah, Court. Tell your kids what they cannot do. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Tell us what we can't do and fight back. Yeah. Was there another hand over here? What, what were the numbers? You went from 40 to the next century? It's, you've got it on your um, handout there on, oh, on page two. So. <laughs> Help a brother out. Um, so, yeah, the year 40, around 1,000. The year 50, uh, 1,400, and by the year 100, 7,500. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what, like, the birth rate growth would have been. Yeah. So if you start with a group of 40 people, yeah. if they're having 6, 7, 8, 10 kids, that might just represent that, well, over a century... This is this is a really kind of familial growth. Yes, this is this is really a good point for Matt. Just in terms of the demographic realities of families having more children, there's a certain degree of inevitability about it. Now, you can never take for granted that because a family is Christian, child is baptized, that they're not going to reject the faith. In fact, one of the most famous, notorious emperors is a guy known as Julian the Apostate, who actually was brought up in a Christian family, and he he's the one. He went all the way to the other end and decided, no, we need to make paganism great again. <laughs> um, and he was like, we, we're going to bring back all of the sacrifices, all of these things. And uh, so, what that, year was that? What year was that? Fourth century? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Matt's point is a good one that for sure the birth rate was a lot higher then. And at no point in the church's history has it been able to overcome. A, um, a birth rate below the replacement rate. The replacement rate is 2.1 women, uh, 2.1 births per child. At no point has the church been able to overcome um, a below replacement rate birth rate by means of evangelism and outreach. Does that make sense? So, for example, I mean, this is something that's a, a cause of concern in Western Europe and also in Russia, where right now the birth rate hovers around 1.4. 
Um, or in Russia, I've, I've read as low as like 1.1. Um, so what that means is you have this declining, declining population um, for the church to overcome that um, without the support of more natural means, if you will. Um, it's very difficult. It's not impossible. God can do anything. But just historically, that's been a, a great and grave challenge. You mean so. like people in the congregation would each have to like witness and kind of... Allocate 2.1 people that they were responsible for bringing. Is that what you mean by like outweighing the birth rate? Um, well, yeah. So like, exactly. I mean, if you think about what would that look like in brass tacks? It would basically be like, yeah, through 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 the witness and the evangelism well, of. Ever one yes. So yeah. Right. So, but I'm more thinking just on mass, you know, um, to to try and do that. And this is what's been happening in the last half century in America. And the LCMS has actually provided some really interesting. Um, demographic studies showing how um, the LCMS's growth or lack thereof has been linked pretty closely to um, the demo falling demographics in our country. Um, so in some respects, that's kind of, it's like, okay, so that's true, but what, what do we do about it? I mean, hopefully we provide encouragement and support to families to have kids, but um, by the same token, we're going to continue. It's not an either or, right? It's not either evangelism or birth. Um, it's, it's a both and kind of thing. So, good. Other questions or thoughts about that? The church grew rapidly, but it took a long time for it to be a kind of a critical mass. Yeah, Ann? Uh, with a different mortality rate in the past, mm. would mm -hmm. there have been a different replacement rate? Uh, yeah, almost certainly. So, um, our, our mortality, especially infant mortality, but um, just the average age of people, with that being different, the uh, replacement rate would have been different too. I'm not sure what that would have been, that's a, but that's a good, a good point. It was just, I would guess that it would probably at least be twice as high. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Okay, so moving on. Number five on your handout. The church is the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. Why do I put that? Because this is... Uh, interesting thing, and you can kind of just brush past it, but the um, apostles, there's how many apostles, how many does Jesus gather around him? Twelve. Twelve, okay? They lose Judas, bummer, they're down to 11. Why do they need to fill that out? Why do they need a twelfth? I mean, can't they get by with 11? Peter seems to be as busy as two of them. You know, wouldn't they be okay? Yeah, Ann? Very good. So um, 12 is a significant biblical number. Jesus had told them, so Luke 22 here at the bottom of your, your handout, Jesus, right, right there, Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we can go one step further. On the one hand, as Anne says, they need 12 because it's the 12, Jesus says, they're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So then take it one step further back. They need 12 because there's 12 tribes of Israel um, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. You know, and these are the, the sons of Jacob, later, you know, one who has his name changed to Israel. Then you can say, well, why does he have 12 kids and why does that number become so significant? And let me tell you, I don't know. 
<laughs> but for whatever reason, 12 is the number. Yeah. God's superstitious. God, oh, because God's superstitious. There you go. There you go. Not 13. That's right. So why aren't the 12 disciples from the 12 tribes of Israel? Why, don't, why isn't there a representative yeah. from each of the 12 tribes? That would be the easiest thing. Well, I, I think the simplest um, demographic... Levi, right? What's that? You have Matthew, Levi. Yeah, <laughs> right. But um, a lot of those tribes, after the uh, diaspora, the spreading out where now the Jews go all over the place, you don't, it's not as clear. I mean, the tribes are all over the place. You have um, people like Paul is able to say, I'm of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Um, and who knows, maybe it was the case that they had representatives from all the 12 tribes. But it's a, it's a fair question. Why wasn't there one from each? Kind of like the all-star team, right? Yeah. You know, and, representing Yeah, representing Dan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, be, be that as it may. But here's the, the really important theological point here, though. As I say, is that this is another thing suggestive of the fact that the church is the new Israel. Okay. The church is the new Israel. What do I mean by that? Um, God had made all of these promises in the Old Testament to the Israelites. And the question is, are all those promises null and void? Or, put another way, are they all kind of on hold until some future day? And the answer of the New Testament is no. They have been realized, or they are realized, through this new Israel of the church. Now, there are some branches of Christianity that reject that whole cloth and make a big deal about the nation, the modern nation of Israel. Now, this is not a political point. I'm not going to tell you whether, you know, what you should think about, about that. That's um, beside the point. But uh, the question is, do, does a modern political nation state fulfill these ancient Old Testament promises that God has made to the people of Israel? And I would say... Um, following from where the New Testament teaches us, no, because the church itself is the inheritor of those promises. And uh, Paul says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1, every promise that God has made finds its yes in Jesus. Um, for those who would push real hard on the, you know, looking forward to the Israel, um, God fulfilling his prophecies to Israel kind of thing, you can almost get this impression that Jesus is like plan B. And it's like, well, what he really wanted to do was work with the Jews. Jesus will be okay as a stopgap, but ultimately it's still about what's he going to do with the Jews. And uh, from that New Testament perspective, it's no, the church is the new Israel. This is why there was the 12 apostles. And this is why, um, for example, in Philippians 3, Paul will say, no, we are the true circumcision. Those who worship God through the Spirit. So that's a claim for being, we're the, um, the heirs of those promises. That's not to say that God doesn't still care about his Old Testament people, or that we shouldn't evangelize, um, uh, proclaim the good news to those who are Jews today. Absolutely we should. But the proclamation is not, hey, just hang tight. God's got something for you in the future. The proclamation is, hey, repent and believe in the gospel. The Messiah has come. And those ancient promises have been, in a sense, ramped up. It's not just about a small plot of land in the Middle East. It's that the meek shall inherit the earth, see, the entire creation. All right, that's kind of a little bit of a soapbox there, but uh, I just said a lot. Questions or pushback about that? You might not even know what I'm talking about at all, and that's so the people okay, who, who, who 
are still holding on to plan A, so, so to speak, right? Are they're often Christians? Yes. And this isn't really in the Jewish population, which this is a Christian population, right? Saying that God's promises still hold for the, for the, the nation of Israel, right? They still hold for the Christian church as well, but they would say that it really holds for yes. Israel, and therefore we should do all that we can to sustain the nation of Israel. Yes. In its political nature as it is Correct. now. Because when because that's the way God's going to deliver the world. Correct. Yes, okay. exactly. Or when he comes back, he's like going to go there first, or like what, like what? Well, yeah, that, I mean that was that was definitely a, a, a part of uh, um, intertestamental Jewish hope, and among the rabbis, the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem first, and so you know there's all these things they want the um, their graves buried oriented toward Jerusalem, that sort of thing. Um, but no, that's that's kind of the idea. And you know this is this is definitely the the fringe um, that holds to this as dogmatically as we need to support the the modern nation state of, of Israel. But that's out there. Um, again, that's not to say that we shouldn't or that that's not a good political practice. But we would want to distinguish between um, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. Put it this way: um, in if you're to go to Israel today. Do you think every single person that lives there has a fervent, faithful trust in God, you know, just the God of Israel? No. I mean, essentially, it's making the same error as kind of the state churches of the past of saying, okay, just because you happen to be a German or a, a Swede that, you know, you're, you're good. Um, this is precisely the thing that John the Baptist came preaching against. God is out of, able out of these stones to raise up sons of Abraham. Don't presume just because you happen to have a certain passport that you're all good. Okay. Other other questions or thoughts or, or pushback about that? Yeah, Anne. Isn't there a stripe of that in Judaism too called Zionism? Well, there, so there's definitely that, that Zionism movement, and this is a little bit beyond my specialty, but as I understand it, has been that push for, for the, the nation state of Israel, having that land. And, um, and there are there's plenty of Christians that have that. And so don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to say these folks aren't Christian who hold these views or something like that. But I do think it's a problematic um, theology. And I, I think ultimately it, um, it, it degrades some of what Christ has accomplished for us and uh, who, who we are as, as God's cho chosen people now. So, good. Other questions or comments about that? All right. So this is the 12 tribes. This is um, the significance of that. Um, James alludes to this as well in his letter. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Okay. Now that's code for the church, essentially. Okay. Now let's keep going on here. Peter um, starts his speech and he's talking about Judas. And it's so fascinating that Peter is the one who would make this speech. Because Peter um, is, in some ways, the most similar to Judas. I, I say here, number six on your handout, Peter and Judas shared most everything in common but their remorse. You think about it, Judas blew it. He essentially disowned Jesus, right? Um, sells him out for the 30 um, pieces of silver. But is he a lot worse than, than Peter? Really? I mean, Peter disowns Jesus as well. I don't know the guy. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Why is it that Peter seems to get a free pass and Judas, 
clearly does not. Well, I think that the, the answer lies in uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, here on, on your handout. Paul says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, underline that, you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, underline that, produces death. Okay, Paul sets up this contrast, godly grief and worldly grief. I think this is very helpful. There is a kind of grief that you can have that is unproductive or counterproductive, put it that way. And this is what Judas has. His, his grief that he feels is this worldly grief. He's sorry that he screwed up, but it doesn't lead to repentance. Because rather than repentance, instead he thinks the only way that I can make this right is to take my own life. Okay? And so it leads to death. Though Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, I think he has in the back of his mind the experience of Judas. So if you want to fill out, uh, I left an empty table here, on the worldly grief side of it, um, that, that's... That's Judas. It's a counterproductive grief that leads to death. It's feeling sorry, but not a sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance. It's just feeling sorry for oneself. Yeah, Leslie. So that's pretty much like somebody who says, you know, you say, well, you know, I'd like you to come to church with me or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and they come back with, well, I'm not good enough or my sins are so great I can't be forgiven. Right. And isn't this, I mean, this is something people will say, and it sounds very humble and modest, but in fact, it's this kind of worldly grief. That's where you have to, to step in and say, hey, you know what? We are all sinners there. That's why, this is where I quote Matthew 9. And Jesus says, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. So he came for. Yeah, Esther. Uh, well, that's what he's saying. It's actually... Um the sin of idolatry because a person yep. is putting themselves up yes. as God yes. to determine what sins are forgivable yes. and unforgivable. That's a great point, Esther. It's essentially an, an idolatry because you're putting your own self and your judgment ahead of God's judgment. Why would you be harder on yourself than what God has already done for you? It's a, again, it's a way that um, uh, denies what Christ has accomplished for us. So then on the contrast, oh, you raised me. go ahead, well, I, that might all be true. I'm not disputing that. But I think when this gets extrapolated about people who take their own lives and, you know, you've heard suicide is sure. a forgivable sin. Right. Similar arguments can be, can be made. I think we might be not really fully appreciating mental illness and things like that. For, that sure. That, Fair that, enough. That to take effect in there. So, yes. You know, and, and quite honestly, I'm not quite sure it's clear that he doesn't. Have, I mean, I mean, yes, this all could be could be could be true, but it's right. not, you know, I mean, uh, I mean. Peter did not, his betrayal did not result in him dying. Right. So, I mean, there's a little bit of different consequences there. Yeah. You know, and, and he was able, he was given the opportunity to redeem himself. Or to enter into his redemption. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, oh, I mean, Chip makes an important point here. We want to be clear to say that mental illness is its own beast. And that's, uh, we never want to come to somebody who's struggling with, um, depression 
or these sorts of things and say, you just need to, to buck up, get through your worldly grief and come to godly grief. That's definitely not the, not the point here. Or even that um, those who do take their own life, that they have necessarily succumbed to worldly grief. It's way more complicated than that. So thank you for, for raising that. Um, in a, the neat and clean kind of table here, it's a little bit clearer, right? Um, and so at least in the abstract, we can see this difference where Peter is the example of it, where he could have um, gone that same route that Judas does. Um, but his, his grief that he feels ultimately translates to repentance and a restoration among the disciples and becomes a, you know, a leader in the church. And so um, his grief um, does not uh, uh, succumb to that. So um, I, think it's, I think it's a helpful distinction, but it's one that needs to come with it, its caveats and qualifications, as Chip suggests. So, Okay, we got just a couple minutes left. Um, so let's uh, um, go through the rest of this here. Number seven on your handout. <clears throat> the apostles, a word that literally means the sent ones, were a distinct and qualified group from the beginning. And uh, it's pointing out, you know, these are the 12 apostles. You have the disciples, which is the wider circle of all the believers. At this point, it's the 120. But within that 120, you have the 12. Okay? These are the apostles. And already in the gospel, you have them set aside as a particular group. So, for example, uh, what's this from earlier in Luke's gospel? It says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The apostles were, from the very beginning, a set-apart class. Um, and there's three criteria now in um, Acts 1 for, okay, who can be one of these? Um, all right, so look at verse, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Let me read this from Acts 1. It says, so one of the men, this is still uh, Peter talking, I believe. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, so this is interesting. With, when it comes to the apostles, Peter lifts up three, uh, three distinguishing marks of them. The first one, and uh, don't get mad at me for saying this, he says it has to be a man. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time. And uh, he makes it a point to use the Greek word andros, which means specifically male, rather than anthropos, which is often used as can be male or female, uh, a, a person. Um, he makes it a point, says it twice, it, it ought to be one of the men among us. Okay, that, So that's the first criteria. The second one is that they have been with us or, and been with the Lord from the beginning. 
So from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up. In other words, they were there accompanying the entire ministry of, of Christ. Okay. And then the third one is that um, they, would, they were a witness of the resurrection. Okay. So these three things, a male who was with Jesus throughout his ministry was a witness of the resurrection. That was their group of people that they had to choose from. Don't know how many there were. Maybe that only left two guys. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, but that, that was the criterion. Now, um, that becomes significant later also um, insofar as the apostles become the forerunners for subsequent generations of pastors, of elders. And this is one of the, the reasons that um, our uh, tradition and other um, Christian traditions as well, including the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, have said um, that among pastors, that they are following into this train. So when people ask, why, don't, why doesn't the LCMS have women pastors, for example? This is one of the reasons why. You say, well, wait a second, but you weren't also a witness of the resurrection and so forth. Okay, fair enough, right? But this a pattern holds, and we see it within the pastoral epistles even, as Paul is telling Timothy, you know, an elder should be a husband of one wife, and he gives the other um, kinds of uh, requirements as well. But uh, I, it's important to notice that here with this identification of the apostles. All right, one last thought. <clears throat> um, number eight on your handout. The Lord leads his supernatural church through natural means. So this gets back to where we started at at the beginning today. How do they choose who the next apostle is going to be? They cast, they throw dice, basically. They gambled. They gambled. <laughs> and, you know, this is a very biblical thing. Uh, you start to research this and look at the cross-references, it shows up again and again and again. It's how they divided the 12 tribes, how they got uh, which land was apportioned to them. They cast lots. I've got a, a reference there from Joshua 14 for you. Uh, I love this one from Proverbs 18. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. This is what we do in our house sometimes. Okay, you guys can't decide. I'm going to flip a coin, right? It does. It puts an end to the quarrel. Everybody's like, okay, how can I argue with that? Right? This is immutable, inarguable wisdom. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I hear that and I think about that and you think within America, obviously, the way that we make decisions is what? We vote. Voting is a good thing. But I, I wonder if we wouldn't be more biblical in our church practice if we said, all right, we're going to cast lots here rather than a vote. Yeah, Becky. I know some orders of the Amish choose their next elders. God bless them. The, um, the eligible yeah. names are stuck into a Bible yep. and they pray about it and then someone is chosen to pick yeah. one of the slips of paper out of the Bible and they trust that God sure. would guide the decision. Right. I mean, I have a lot to disagree with, with the okay. Amish. But Speaking I, of superstition. But, yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean... You think about it, why is it any more likely that God would work through voting than he would through casting lots? That's not to say that we shouldn't do voting. It is to say we ought to recognize that it's kind of, it's not all that different, right? It's essentially a way, and for those who would say, oh, this is such a human process, whether it be you know, the, the call process or other decisions in the church, it can look all too human sometimes, believe me, I know. But it's that trusting that, God leads his supernatural church through natural means. 
that through this, you know, through the, the muck and mire of, of humans and all of our problems and issues, he is still, the spirit is still at work through that. If he could work through dice for crying out loud, he can work through voting. He can work through committees. He can work through us, uh, especially insofar as we entrust our work to the Lord and see that he's going to care for it. Yeah, Matt. I do love the way it's also handled up to the point where it's just the decision is the Lord's. Yes. Like we've done our best. We've yep. chosen based on the scriptures. Yep. We've used all that we have as a yep. guide, so it's down to just decision. Right. And that's what they let me the Lord's. Yep, exactly. So they, it's not that they um, uh, just kind of punted and said, well, God, you just got to figure this out. They used their good human reason and discernment to get it down to their last two candidates. And then they said, all right, God, you got it from here, right? Um, there's a, the Matthias group is praying over the corner. <laughs> um, so there it is. It's a fascinating thing. And uh, yeah, Carla. What about the place of the Urman and the Thuman for the priests? Very similar. So the Urman and the Thuman that also shows up in the Old Testament, from all that I can read and gather, it was a very similar kind of thing, where it was essentially a sanctified decision-making tool where, okay, Lord, we're going to uh, roll the dice here. Which one does it fall on? Um, and uh, uh, I feel like I might have brought this up in Bible study once before, but my understanding is you, you would have two of them, and if they both, both came up Urim, then that would be that one. If they both came up Thuman, it would be that one. And then if it was one of each, then that meant wait. <laughs> the answer is not there yet. But uh, I, can't, I can't confirm that for sure. All right, thank you very much for your attention. Sorry to keep us over a little bit, but next week we'll pick up with the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. See you then.